This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Tonight, I would like to speak about the nature of samsara. The meaning of the word samsara is perpetual wandering. This refers to the cycle of endless change, endless arising and passing away of phenomena. The endless cycle of rebirth through all of the different realms of existence. Endless wandering. The Buddha's understanding of the scope of this wandering is very, very large. His understanding of the nature of the universe included the direct seeing of many planes of existence. Mostly we're familiar with the animal realm and the human realm. Through the power of his mind, he was able to see other kinds of planes of existence, lower realms and higher realms. So all these world systems extending over eons, vast eons of time. So it's a big picture. And samsara is the endless wandering, the endless process of change according to different conditions through all of these realms, through all of these worlds. And in this vastness, this vastness of samsara, there are three aspects which stand out in all of the different realms, in all of the different conditions of experience. That is the fact of birth, the fact of decay, and the fact of death. Wherever we look, in whatever realm, in whatever time frame, whether we think of it in terms of the birth and destruction of galaxies or world systems, or we look at the time span of a single lifetime, or of the eternity of a three-month course, (laughs) or of a moment. 
we see that everything which has the nature to take birth inevitably decays and dies. That this is the nature, this is the salient characteristics of samsara. We can see that everything in our lives really stems or is rooted in these three basic experiences of birth, decay, and death. All our hopes, our aspirations, our values, our desires, our aversions, our fears, the suffering and freedom, all have to do with these three root aspects taking birth we didn't take birth, there'd be no problem. But birth happens, and everything consequent on that, the decaying process, death, over and over and over again, from moment to moment, within a lifetime, over many lifetimes. If we can connect with this very deep truth, it raises some very profound questions for us. That is, what are we doing in our lives, with our lives? It's so easy to think of birth, decay, and death as an abstraction. If we connect with the truth of it, It demands a consideration of how we're living our lives, of the choices that we make. What's of value to us? And is it worthy being of value to us? We very often are looking for a sense of completion or a sense of fulfillment, sense of peace. The question is, where are we looking for this? Because if we're looking within the realm of samsara, within the realm of conditioned, changing existence, it can never be found. It's said that Buddhas arise in the world for the very specific purpose of coming to a full understanding of birth, decay, and death. Of what keeps this round of conditioning going on and on, this round of continual change, There are three interdependent cycles which keep the wheel of samsara rolling. The first of these cycles is called the cycle of kilesa or defilement. 
There's a problem with the word defilement as a translation of the Pali word gilesa. Because when we hear that word in English, there's a very strong tendency to personalize it. If we think of certain qualities of mind as being defilements, or as us being defiled, there's a funny feeling that we get of being sinners or bad or evil or unworthy or all kinds of self-judgment and condemnation often arises. And so it's important to understand that this is not the implication of the word kilesa. Rather, it's those qualities in the mind not which make us bad, but which make us suffer. It's those qualities in the mind which cause trouble in our lives. When kilesis are present, when these defilements are present, there is no peace. There is no rest. What's so interesting to observe in our mental behavior is that so often we assume the posture of justifying these delays. I should be angry because that so-and-so did this and that. And so we justify our anger, or we justify our jealousy, or we justify our fear. And what's happening then is we are confusing the fact that there are conditions for the arising of these defilements. It's not that they're uncaused. The question we forget at that time of justification is who is suffering. The anger makes us suffer. The fear makes us suffer. The jealousy makes us suffer. It's like holding on to a hot burning coal and self-righteously proclaiming that we have a right to hold on to this hot burning coal. It doesn't make sense. The first kilesa, the root kilesa to understand, is that of ignorance. And ignorance is a tremendously powerful force in the mind. There's the ignorance of not knowing something. And we can see this in very worldly matters. We can be ignorant of certain understandings of science or art or whatever. Things we just don't know. We can be ignorant in this sense of Dharma knowledge. Perhaps we're ignorant or don't know of the law of karma or of the Four Noble Truths or any kind of spiritual knowledge. There's that kind of ignorance. 
There's the ignorance of not knowing what is present in the moment. Every time we're lost in a thought, we're daydreaming, we're wandering, in those moments we're ignorant of what is actually happening. That is ignorance in the sense of not knowing. There's a second kind of ignorance which is even more difficult. It has a very strange twist to it. And uh, that's the ignorance when we know something, but we know it incorrectly. When we don't have a correct view of a situation. And this one is very difficult to untangle because in our minds, we think we understand, we think we know. But we're not knowing rightly. There are some very striking and deep examples of this kind of ignorance in our lives. For the most part, we take what is deeply unsatisfying to be the source of our happiness. We take condition-changing phenomena to be the cause of happiness. And so it's a fundamental ignorance, a fundamental knowing incorrectly. When we take what is not self to be I, when we take thoughts or feelings or emotions or sensations or the body, when we take that to be I, that is knowing something in an incorrect way. This ignorance has a very awesome power in our lives because we're relating to the most fundamental drives, to the most fundamental aspects of our experience in a way that is not correct, not in harmony with the truth. You can see the beginning of a spiritual journey, a spiritual path, happening when we begin to get a sense of the power of ignorance in our lives. If we don't have this sense, we just blindly go our way, not knowing. But something happens when we begin to get a glimmer, a sense that maybe we don't understand everything. Maybe things are not quite right, or not quite complete, or not quite whole.
Often what we try to do then is to come out of the ignorance, or to begin to come out of it through thinking. We try to use our reasoning power, our thought power, our intellectual power, to somehow emerge from this domain of ignorance. We create whole philosophic systems. I was at the university quite a while ago, studied philosophy. Because even at that time, I was trying to understand what was what, what was going on. I remember quite clearly in my freshman year, my mind was really obsessed with some very fundamental questions. And I remember very clearly giving myself a week to discover whether God existed or not. (laughs) Okay, I I have to know. And I tried to think it out. Unfortunately, I can't remember what I decided. (laughs) But over those years of studying philosophy, it, it finally became so frustrating because it became clear that the reasoning power of mind was not capable of really coming to the kind of understanding that I wanted. It happens a lot in the meditation practice. Now we go on and at times may settle into some strong mindfulness or awareness or concentration. And all sorts of things begin to happen. And a natural, quick tendency of mind is to start reflecting on it, to start thinking about it, to try to understand it through this thought process. And actually that becomes a sidetrack. What's happening really at that time is an undermining of the forward momentum. Sometimes people see through this ploy of thought, understand that we can't come to a deep understanding through thinking, and they resort to feeling. Feeling becomes the measure. If it feels good, it must be right. We begin to measure everything by how it feels to us. But feeling is not a reliable measure of wisdom. Very often, things may feel good in the moment. Very good. We may feel wonderful. And yet there may be very harmful consequences of that action or experience. You eat this big chocolate cake. Mmm, wonderful. You feel so good. For how long? Feeling is not the measure of wisdom. 
And sometimes it works the other way, and this is also very common in practice. Sometimes things feel terrible. The body can feel terrible, the mind can feel terrible. Really, dwelling in suffering. And yet it actually be a very great deepening of wisdom and understanding. The range of thought and the range of feeling does not extend, it does not have the power, does not have the range to come to the end of ignorance. What's necessary is to train the heart, not merely to follow it. What's necessary is to train the mind, not merely get lost in thoughts and reflections. The Buddha opened up a whole dimension, a whole domain and method of coming to the end of ignorance. And it was a method that goes beyond thought and beyond feeling. And it's exactly what we're practicing here in this kind of intensive meditation that is the development of a strong, sustained, observing power of mind. It's not thinking about things. It's observing directly and intimately and closely the nature of what is happening. If we want to discover what is true, if we want to come out of ignorance, we have to train the heart and train the mind to be awake, to be aware, to be mindful. When we do this repeatedly, over and over again, we begin to discover that the whole of our lives, the whole of experience, is a succession of mental and physical phenomena continually arising and passing and changing. In Pali, it's a very common phrase which is used. I think sometimes it's helpful just to understand a few of the very basic Pali words. It's called Nama Rupa, that all of existence is Nama Rupa. Nama means mental phenomena, Rupa means physical phenomena. And so what we observe continually is consciousness, the knowing of different objects, six sense objects. What we call life, what we call self, what we call I, is simply the arising and vanishing, moment after moment, of consciousness and its object, consciousness and its object, arising and vanishing very quickly. We see that. This is not a question 
of subscribing to a belief. It's a question of discovering for oneself through direct observation. We begin to see the changing nature, see the insubstantiality of things. We begin to see the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness. Until we see this deeply, until we understand the arising of this mental-physical phenomena, our lives are ruled by ignorance. And because of the ignorance of not seeing, of not seeing Nama Rupa arise and pass away, we take experience, we take objects to be essentially desirable. Our experience is continually arising through the six sense doors. The sights and sounds and smell and taste and bodily sensations. Objects of mind, thoughts and visions and emotions. And the mind finds delight in them, it finds happiness in them, it finds joy in them for a moment, and then they're gone. They can't actually fulfill us. They can't bring completion because they're so ephemeral, they're so impermanent. It's the kilesa of ignorance, which in its great power, makes us take the truth of dukkha, the truth of unsatisfactoriness, to be our happiness. It's an amazing, an amazing turn of the mind that happens when ignorance is present. We take the truth of dukkha to be the source of our happiness, and so we are continually disappointed. We're on the wrong path when we think that happiness, a lasting happiness, a lasting peace is going to come through the six sense doors, through the six sense objects. At this point, it's very helpful to consider what we mean by six sense doors, six sense objects. Because we hear the phrases and somehow intellectualize them or abstract them. So, yes, six sense doors and six sense objects, and they're not going to bring happiness, and they're out here someplace. But when you consider the meaning of the words, it's staggering. Because what six sense doors and six sense objects means is everything we experience. This is a radical understanding, a radical statement of the Buddha. What he's saying is that whatever arises in our experience at all 
whether you think of it as the most hedonistic pleasures or the most refined states of meditation, that whatever arises through the six sense doors, its mind included, is unsatisfying. That's everything. So then, what do we do in our lives? And if we get this, if we really understand this, what are the choices that we make? What are we going after? What do we want? The depth of the Buddhist teaching is that it makes us look in a very fundamental way at what we're doing with our lives, at what we're valuing. Going after happiness through these six sense objects is like being in a desert, walking in a desert, and seeing in the distance a mirage of water. You know, we might get all excited and overjoyed at seeing the water, and we walk quicker and quicker and quicker to get to it, And it's not there. Impossible to quench our thirst. As long as ignorance is ruling in the mind, As long as this kilesa is strong in the mind, we continually take these sense objects to be the cause of our happiness and we never come to rest. This ignorance, this kilesa of ignorance, further conditions another powerful defilement. which is the defilement of craving or desire. Craving or desire is the hungering or thirsting for different experience, different sights or sounds or mind objects. And we can see how it works in very big ways in our lives. We can also see how it works in the very little ways. Always looking for the next moment. Rushing through the moment to get to the next one. Thinking the next one is going to be better. The next sense experience the next relationship, the next event, the next... I'm sure you have had 
that sense in your lives of always waiting for the next thing to happen, as if the next thing is finally going to do it. And so we're continually toppling forward into next. Into the next empty, insubstantial piece of quicksand. But we keep doing it over and over again. Ignorance also conditions wrong view. Not only this craving that we have, but it also conditions this wrong view of taking things to be self, to be I. And our whole life revolves around this wrong view of I, of self. My thought, my anger, my pain. This is happening to me. This belongs to me. This is what I want. This is what I need. How much of what we do revolves about this idea. And this idea of self is conditioned by ignorance, by not understanding. Just imagine for a moment, see if you can visualize the actual moment of your death. What belongs to you? What will you be taking? Who is the I that dies? So much of our life is spent in this wrong view, relating everything to self, and yet it's all going. from ignorance of nama-rupa, from ignorance of the arising and passing of things, we take sense objects to be the cause of our happiness. Because of this ignorance, we crave them, we want them. Because of the ignorance, we take them to be self or to belong to one. This craving further conditions Another defilement of clinging or grasping, holding on, not wanting to let go. These three kilesas in the mind, ignorance, craving, and grasping, they keep us moving around and around in this cycle of samsara. There is no balance in our lives. There is no rest in our lives. As long as the cycle of kilesa is revolving. This revolution of ignorance, craving, and grasping becomes the cause of another interdependent cycle. And that is the cycle of action. It's called the cycle of karma. Because of our craving, because of our grasping, 
we perform all kinds of actions. Some of them are wholesome, some of them are unwholesome. We can see these actions in terms of major life decisions. We can see them countless times during the day. All the acts of volition, of willing, of intending. What makes this cycle of action so consequential for us, so immensely important, has to do with the working of one very small little mental factor. And that is the mental factor of volition. Volition is that intending quality in the mind, the willing quality in the mind. Why is this such a big deal? Because this mental factor of volition, of willing, has this almost magical property of having the power to bring results. If what we did had no results, the actions that we performed would not be so much of an issue. But because each intention in the mind, each volition in the mind, is like a seed. Now, it's amazing to think that a huge tree can come out of a seed. Just a tiny little seed. And yet the potential that it contains, and all the fruits, and all the seeds, and all the further trees, enormous set of consequences. Each one of our intentions, of our volitions, has the power of this life-giving seed. It brings result. It brings result in this lifetime. It can condition various kinds of rebirth. The power of it can extend over lifetimes. It's because of volition that this cycle of action, of karmic action, is so important. Because it brings results. I'd like to tell you just a few of the more dramatic karma stories. There are countless, countless stories. But one of these in particular is so striking and so startling. It was told to me by a friend of mine uh, who also had been in Burma for a long time. It seems that quite recently in Burma there had been a very famous film star. He was known all over the country And then he died quite young. And his family 
this is in a Buddhist culture, and they had this very uh, deep belief in Dharma and rebirth and karma. And so they went to, there are, there are some people in Burma who are not necessarily enlightened or great teachers, but who have the psychic power to see where people are, are reborn. And so this, this actor, this famous film star's family, is very anxious to find out you know, where his next birth was. So they went to one of these, one of these people. And the old man didn't want to tell them. He said, don't ask. <laughs> but they insisted. <laughs> don't ask. They insisted again. Okay. They said, go up north to this particular village. On the outskirts of the village, there's a pig farm. Go to the pen, this place where all the pigs are kept, and call out the name of your son. And that was the... They went up. This is a true story. <laughs> you don't have to believe it, but it's a true story. <laughs> they went up to this little village in the country. They went out to the pig farm. There were all these, you know, hundred pigs or so. And they called out their son's name. I'll call him Max for convenience sake. <laughs> and sure enough, as they called this one pig, you know, Max came over. And then they did this many times and they became convinced that this really was Max. <laughs> so they took him home. <laughs> and they created this kind of little place underneath the house. And they started serving him curries and, you know, all kinds of nice things and made a nice bed for Max. <laughs> It can also go the other way. <laughs> there's another, there's another story. This is from the time of the Buddha. This, this Max story actually is quite recent. <laughs> In the time of the Buddha, it's, it happened that um, the Buddha was giving a discourse and it was outside and it was by a pond. It was just a frog. And was sitting on a stone, and somebody kind of leaned on a staff, you know, and, and accidentally killed the frog. It turns out that because in its last moments, this frog was just hearing the voice of the Buddha, you know, its mind was in a very still space, even not understanding anything, but just the, the peacefulness of it. And this frog was reborn in the heaven worlds as a result of that last moment. And I looked back on his past life and saw where it came from. And he decided to practice quite hard. (laughs) For those of you who are somewhat skeptical of all this, (laughs) uh, we have this friend... Um, a Sri Lankan young man who when he was two or three started chanting the ancient Pali scriptures 
and and was chanting it in a way that has not been chanted now for hundreds of years. You know, and later on, as he got older, and it's all on tape, maybe one that will play some of his chanting. It's really beautiful to hear the power of this chanting in the in the voice of a two or three year old. Anyway, as he got older uh, and started meditating, he actually remembered some of his past lives. He remembered being a monk in the year around 500 AD in one of the great monasteries of Sri Lanka. And they were doing, in the present time, archaeological digs at that site. And this boy uh, went with his family to this place, and he pointed out to them where various things would be. He said, you know, if you dig here, you're going to find the library. If you dig here, you'll find this. And they did it, and they found just what he said. So in hearing all this, it's quite foreign ideas to our Western way of thinking. I tell the stories as a suggestion just to keep the mind open to other possibilities. And to consider the enormous consequences, the enormous power of our actions. But this cycle of karma, cycle of action, is important because of its power to bring results. Results in this life, results in future lives. In a very succinct summary, the Buddha listed ten unwholesome actions. Ten actions which bring bad results. So I thought I'd mention them tonight. It's good to know them. And so if we're making choices, these are the ones that don't lead to happiness. There are three actions of the body. There's killing, there's stealing, and there's sexual misconduct. Those are actions that have harmful consequences. Harmful in the present, harmful in the future. Killing things, stealing things, sexual misconduct. There are four actions of speech. Of lying. Of gossiping. You know, just talking about people behind their backs. Of causing divisiveness. Of harsh speech. Of speaking angrily and useless talk. We tend not to give very much weight or importance to our speech. Yet the Buddha is saying that these are powerful actions. They bring results. And so he's really cautioning or admonishing us, take care. And there are three unwholesome actions of mind. Covetousness, which is really a form of 
strong craving, ill will, and wrong view. So there's the cycle of kilesa, there's the cycle of defilement, there's ignorance, there's craving and clinging. This cycle of kilesa conditions the cycle of action. Because of craving and clinging, we perform all kinds of actions. Some unwholesome, some wholesome. The cycle of action conditions the third cycle of results. What this means is, because of the power of volition, we experience results in the form of the six different sense objects. And it can be on any of the planes of existence, depending upon the karmic food. The cycle of karmic action brings about the cycle of karmic results, which are all the experiences that we have of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, thinking. When we're unmindful of experience, kilesas arise. From the arising of the kilesas, we perform actions. From performing actions, we experience results. From the experience of results, new kilesas arise. From the defilements, new actions. From the actions, new results, new experience. This is the wheel of samsara. We keep going around and around through these three cycles. And the great power of the Buddha's enlightenment was that he was able to see this. He was able to examine this mind-body, this world, with such penetrating insight that he could see how these cycles were operating. What kept this wheel of samsara rolling on and on endlessly. And he understood how to break the chain of these cycles so that we're not caught, we're not trapped, we're not imprisoned. In every moment of mindfulness, in every moment, not a superficial kind of awareness, but a very intent, clear observation of what is truly happening in the moment. The mind is deconditioning the kalesas. In that moment, there is no ignorance, there is no craving, there is no aversion. In every moment of clear noting, we begin to see the true nature of phenomena. We're no longer ruled by ignorance. We are aware of what's happening. And we're aware without grasping, without condemning, without identifying with it. We begin to see the three characteristics, the impermanence, the dukkha, the selflessness. When there's no ignorance in the mind, there's no craving. 
When there's no craving, there's no grasping. Because we're seeing the true characteristics. One more little story before the end of samsara. Some years ago, I bought this beautiful little rug. I saw it in the store and I thought, this is the perfect rug. It was like a Persian rug. It was just beautiful. It was just the right size for meditation. And it was beautiful colors of dark blue and red and beautiful pattern. I loved this rug. And I was really attached to it. And when you find the perfect rug, it's <laughs> not worthy of being attached to it. And often I would just look at it and delight in having this rug. And then the pattern was so intricate. And at one point, I'm just sitting and looking at this rug. And then I see that in one corner of the pattern, it's totally askew. I mean, it's just totally off. And people told me, oh yes, in you know, oriental carpets, they always put in a little mistake. This was not a little mistake. <laughs> this was a big mistake. And I couldn't believe that I hadn't seen it before. And it was just amazing to me. As soon as I noticed that, I couldn't care less what happened to that carpet. The attachment to it was totally gone in that instant. Seeing the three characteristics are like seeing what was askew in that rug. When we see the impermanence, when we see the unsatisfying, inherently unsatisfying nature, when we see the selflessness of all phenomena, when we really see that deeply, it uproots this strong craving and attachment and grasping in the mind. What we are doing in this retreat, what we do in our practice, is very slowly and gradually coming to a profound understanding of samsara, of how this whole cycle of birth, decay, and death continues to go on and on and on. How we perpetuate it, and how we can become free of it. Don't undervalue each moment of clear seeing that has tremendous liberating force in the mind. Let's sit for a few minutes.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insighthour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insighthour. 